You are now tuned in to the December 26th podcast, where we encourage you to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Hey, 26er family, welcome to the December 26er podcast. I am your host, Delisha, and this episode features Zan Truluck. Zan is a visual artist, clothing designer, and senior leader within Boeing's diversity, equity, and inclusion organization. Born in Brooklyn and raised in Baltimore, Zan was classified as gifted by the third grade. And by fifth grade, he was attending an arts-focused school. But brains ran in his family. His mother, who raised him on her own while his father was in prison, graduated from high school at 15 and attended both college and trade school. She worked as an electrician, but after an injury left her partially disabled, she was forced to leave her career behind. And due to some financial troubles, Zan and his mother ended up homeless and would spend many nights in the cab that she drove to try to keep them afloat. Even though he had the grades, Zan hadn't given much thought to where he wanted to go to college until February of his senior year. But despite the late start, he was accepted by every school he applied to. He settled on Morehouse, and even with financial challenges and a difficult home life still looming, he found a true sense of community on campus. After graduating with a BA in economics, Zan began his career in finance at Boeing. But after multiple rotations, he would eventually realize that HR was his sweet spot. Very early in his career, he saw an opportunity to champion diversity. And today, Zan's responsible for his company's business resource groups, which are designed to further personal and professional development, promote diversity, and strengthen networking amongst Boeing's employees. Not only does Zan feel that he can bring his authentic self to work, he's also working to ensure that others feel that same sense of belonging. In addition to moving the needle forward in corporate America, Zan is also promoting racial equity and justice through his art and clothing designs. So without further ado, here's his story. Zan, welcome to the December 26th podcast. How are you? Thank you, Delisha. I'm doing well. So happy to have you. I must say, I'm looking at the background there behind you and feeling like I really need to get my kicks game up. Um, feeling real deficient right now after uh, seeing all the the sneakers you have back there. Uh, I think this is oversupply right now. This is supply glut. I think is the economics term, and I would not encourage anyone to in, to inhabit this uh, this habit. Like it is just, it's terrible. I've been trying to kick it for years, uh, and Nike has had way too much of my money. <laughs> Listen, I'm, you know, as a woman, I was on the stiletto train and all that. But over the course of the pandemic, I have really gotten into the sneakers in a way that I I have not since I was working at Foot Action in high school. So Mm -hmm. um, and now, you know, once you get used to being out of those five inch heels, it's really hard to go back. That's for sure. Well, it's like I went in the I made a similar descent into comfort, I guess I'll mm-hmm. say. But my descent was from like I'm going from Nike's to don't make me put on anything I have to lift <laughs> up. So I'm pretty much exclusively in like slippers and elevated slippers outside. So I built my whole life during the pandemic around basically wearing elevated pajamas outside, indoor, outdoor clothes. Listen, I am not mad at it at all. <laughs> I, I'm trying to readjust to real life on the outside and everything just feels uncomfortable. But here we are, right? I guess yeah, we should see that's a blessing. I don't know. Yeah, like I, so I, I've been working 100% virtual since September of 2019. So like maybe about five months before we'll call the pandemic finally arriving here in 2020. So I was already comfortable with it. And then it just exacerbated all the things that I loved. 
And I looked around and I had a head start on people. I'm like, oh, you all aren't comfortable with being in the house nine hours a day, five days a week. Oh, okay. Well, let me show you how to do it. So I think I was on the forefront of the comfort wave. Mm -hmm. And then the pandemic really just accentuated all the stuff I loved about being able to create my own space. So that's why this background is like this. It was a pandemic project to just say, how can I make the most creative space possible to really thrive in a time when we have to be inside? Well, I can see that the sense of style is most certainly there alongside the comfort. That's for sure. <laughs> Thank you. So let's get into it. Who is Zan Truluck? You would think so. I guess eventually we'll get to what my career is, but you would think, given my career, which is in HR, that I would be really good at answering this question because I've asked it so many times in so many different ways. And I guess the difficulty I find in asking this question that I very much figured you would ask me today is that Zan Truluck is a person who is constantly defining, refining, and redefining the answer to that question. So I am a human being who is both a work of art and a work of work in progress. So when I'm asked, who am I? It's like, oh, well, I'm all of my experiences up until this point now. I'm my ability to contextualize those experiences to become the person I want to be in the future. And it's kind of like I'm trying to be present-minded and define who am I now while also bringing in all that I've ever been. So I did come up with a phrase because I felt like I had to have something. So Zan Truluck is a Renaissance man with a social conscience living a spiritually grounded and God-led life. And everything that I do under that description is at this point in my life, and I hope in the past point in my life, an effort to glorify God and to really give the world the gifts that God has given me. And it shows up in a bunch of different spaces. I hope it shows up in every space because authenticity, I think, is a gift that God gave me. And I really just wanted to be known that I tried my hands in a lot of things, but the hand guiding my hands was always something bigger than me. And I hope that I left a lasting impact in all those things. So when we pare down a bit and ask who is Zan True Luck, and I think about titles presently that I occupy, I am a clothing designer, or I like to be a francophone and make it sound fancy since my real name is uh, Zan Tuan. So I'm a clothier, <laughs> um, but clothing designer. I am a painter, illustrator, just multidisciplinary artist, and 50, maybe 60 hours a week. Even though I don't like to admit it, I am a DEI leader working very hard. I like to admit that I'm a DEI leader. I don't like to admit how many hours I work at it. But uh, I am a DEI leader at the Boeing Company and really working hard daily to make an impact on the world in all of these three spaces. So there is so much there um, to to really unpack and talk about how you've evolved into this this man that you are uh, being God led and wearing many hats that you don't often see work together well, namely being an artist and a designer, but also having this really heavy corporate job at this longstanding organization. And just by looking at you, I can tell you, you are showing up exactly as yourself, right? So um, all the calls, I look like this when I'm on video calls. Maybe my hair is braided more often than not, but recently I've been letting it out a little more too. Mm-hmm. So for, I, I definitely want to get to the journey to become this version of Zan. And if it was always there, mm-hmm. you evolved into it over time. But I want to set the foundation and talk about your origin story and your upbringing uh, as well and, and how you really became this person and, and what were the seeds that were sown very early 
to drive you to this point. So tell me a little bit about Zan, or should I say Zan Tuan, uh, the, the child. What was that like for you? All right. So um, it's funny enough, my mom, back to the hair thing, my mom, I just, so my mom and I talk really often, probably not as often as she would like, but as I've ascertained more often than the normal 34 year old man and his mom do, uh, we stay in constant communication because then the child was constantly protected and provided for by only his mother. Uh, we had a big, a big village eventually that fed into to other spaces and filled gaps that my mom couldn't fill. But from the amount of challenge that my mom had as a, she was a single mom her entire life. So 17 years until I left was a single mom at 21. So still a very young woman. Granted, my mom graduated high school at 15. So it's kind of hard to say my story without giving context to my mom. So brilliant woman who had a child and by circumstances that happen in the types of communities we hail from. My mom and I are from Brooklyn. Um, I was raised mostly in Baltimore, Maryland. And uh, so circumstances as they would have it from just my dad is an immigrant and was an immigrant who had a life, had life choices to make and those life choices ended him up in prison. So um, my mom did it all by herself in an environment where it's tough. Where it, it's uh, Zan comes from Crown Heights, Brooklyn, originally, uh, again, to a single mom, a father in prison. No, not a big family to begin with. Uh, it's like when I was born, back to the pressure that I've experienced since I was a child, when I was born, I was kind of like the Messiah to my family. Mm. <laughs> it's like, oh, uh, my my mom's dad was murdered when she was four years old. And and then uh, his brother passed away six months after him. Mm. and. So my great-grandmother, who, like, outside, that was like my dad. Um, she gave everything and fully helped my mom in the spaces, again, that she couldn't fill to really give us every, and give me every fighting chance beyond that upbringing and beyond what statistics said I would never be. So my great-grandmother lost both her sons. She had a granddaughter, but it was like she was missing that. I I've had a son in my life. I had this man in my life. And, and then among our extended family, like her, her sister's, they, those were their nephews. So then I come along two generations later and everybody's like, whoa, now we got another one and they're feeding in everything they wanted Donald and Willie Earl to be. So glad I ended up with Antoine and wasn't called <laughs> Willie Earl true luck. But um, <laughs> everything they wanted Donald and Willie Earl to be, they poured into me. And again, showing up today as the as everything I've ever been, everything that people before me have ever been. So the prayers of my ancestors, legitimately, all of these people have transitioned on now but I'm everything they were pouring into the universe until the point that I came. But I felt that pressure my whole life because I had, I'm an only child. So no brothers, or sisters, at least I'm my mother's only child. Um, my mom has one brother. So still a small family and I'm still the, I'm the first grandchild and still the only grandson. So it's like, everybody's like, Hey, <laughs> you're the man. And between that and then like circumstances with just being raised by a single mom, trying to do all she has. Um, you know, it, it being a man was something that I learned very early or tried to assume being a, a man is a lifelong thing, in my opinion. And um, assuming what your gender identity is and, and coming into that fully as a man, it is how do I express my masculinity? How do I express the role that I played in my life up until this point? And then uh, to, I, I did do my homework, but you can always pivot. Right. So. Mm -hmm. Uh, on your, your podcast before your 40th, happy belated by the, by the way, um, you. you talked about pivoting and 
you always can pivot and decide how you want to show up as a man in a given day. There are some core principles there. And I learned a lot of that core very early is, is I guess what I'm trying to get to my, the idea of being a present provider when my mom did not have that. Um, it, it was definitely something that I don't at all think was forced on me. And I think I was prepared to do that because very early on, my mom taught me how to take care of myself. Mm-hmm. And I was, I joined something yesterday for work and it was a, um, it was a webinar about the neuroscience of, of taking rest. And in this, in this webinar, I talked about how your brain, um, it talked about socialization and women, women and men's brains were wired the same, right? Like our brains are functionally like biologically the same thing, but socialization is what changes how we act in life. And it's interesting when you are raised by a woman who my mom was very clear. I cannot tell you, I can't teach you how to be a man. She said, I can teach you how to be a gentleman and teach you how a woman would want to be treated, but I can't teach you how to be a man. And tying this back to the webinar yesterday, uh, when they got into the neuroscience and the socialization, they spoke to the fact that women are socialized to take care of people mm. and your socialization, right? Even down to when you play with dolls and very appropriate it's women's history month. And we're talking about this, but even when you play with dolls, it's simulating taking care of something or someone. So I learned how to extend care from my mom. And then that also was paired with what I saw absent from the support structure side. So you pair that, oh, I'm learning how to care from a woman and I'm learning how to be present and care for a woman because no man is there. And I learned that extremely early in life. And it started off with her saying, take care of yourself, right? So, so I was, my friends and I, were, we were in a group chat earlier today and they were talking about how they can't cook. And and somebody said that they, they didn't do something until they were 10. I was like, I fried chicken for the first time at five. Mm. <laughs> right. Like for all intents and purposes, like a black superhero origin story, right? Like this black man learned to fry chicken at five years old. And I show up with Fred Douglas hair today. Like it's just, it sounds nuts, but I'm, and I'm actually allergic to watermelon. So debunking all stereotypes. Um, Got it. But I show up, I show up and, and well, I'm having this conversation with them and they're like, wait, what? And I said, yeah, I, I think I was staying home by myself. I don't, I think we're beyond the statute of limitations now. So if I was staying home, child protective services, look at me now, do not go get my mom. But I think I was staying home for myself for at least like two hours at a time at like five or six. Mm-hmm. And that made Zan true like a very independent person. So a uh, very precocious kid. Apparently I was told from the time I was young that I was gifted and a lot of people poured into blocking and tackling the things that would come to a child of a single mom who was fairly young, who was working full time. So I, I don't ever want to get the story um, as I tell my story and tell it more authentically and bear some of those darker places in my story. I want to make sure that the record is straight because my mom probably doesn't love me sharing this story because she has a different viewpoint of it. And I think I, I read something recently that spoke about we need to claim our histories to essentially we need to claim our stories to own them. Yes. And both my mother and I went through this together and we both have unique perspectives on what we went through from that point in time and then where we are now. So I want to honor everything that she may be, but also as I tell my story, it's my story about our story. And, and I want that viewpoint to be clear. But um, she would say, make sure it's clear that your mother had a job. My mom, again, graduated 15, 21 year old who was an electrician and she was a woman in a a black woman that was an electrician in a male-dominated field, um, just wow. male, white male in New York, just and she went to 
both college and trade school since you graduated at 15 to like set up for success mentally. And then you have other things that impact us in life as the neighborhoods that we come from do. So I just want to be clear there. There was no like as there was no drugs involved from my mom being a drug user and all of that, because I've had a bunch of people look and say things like even when I got to Morehouse, jokingly, I had a professor say and, and he, it was jokingly. He said, uh, true luck. It says here you're from Baltimore, from Brooklyn. People from where you're from aren't usually too smart. How'd you get here? Mm-hmm. And it was like, oh, it was jarring. But he had taught in both Brooklyn and in Baltimore. He actually had been pouring into me the entire time I was in his micro or macroeconomics classes. And he wrote my recommendation to Boeing, where I'm still there 13 years later. So I know he meant well. But when you have a story like mine, and I think we all have a story like this, and I was telling DeMarcus in the, the intro, no, everybody got it out the mud. It's just everybody's version of the mud is the different mud. Like, you know, to Jeff Bezos, where he started, probably feels like the mud for him. Mm-hmm. So everybody's mud just looks a little different. So it's the mud story. But, um, you know, we, at a certain point in time, my mom realized, and this was when I was about five, that she couldn't, she couldn't give me the life she wanted to give me as this gifted child if we stayed in Brooklyn. There had been like instances, and this is not my recollection, it's just my memories that she told me at this point. But there had been instances where there were shootouts in the neighborhood we were in and like she's ducking in, in buildings to dodge bullets to save her infant child. And when you think about an environment like that, late 80s, early 90s, New York, crack still very present, um, it's dangerous. And she said, well, let me, let's get in the suburbs. And we moved from Brooklyn to Long Island. Mm-hmm. Uh, we stayed in Long Island for about two years or so. And then my mom said, well, the best chance of making this happen is going to Maryland. Like, let's go to Maryland. So we ended up in Baltimore. We had somewhat of a network there, like second, third cousins lived there and extended family and such. But really, it was just us for most of the time. And again, early on, by the time I was in third grade, I was getting tested for like that, that so- social tracking that they do in schools and things. And by the time I was in third grade, I was taking exams for am I a gifted child? Mm. So I took, um, I took two tests, one like math proficiency and one, uh, one linguistic proficiency and said I had an eighth grade math level and a 12th grade reading level, whatever that means, but that's what it said. Wow. And from that time, they took me and put me in a different type of class. So I was told I was gifted. I wasn't in a, like as a black child, you were told from the time I was in third grade until the time I graduated high school that I was gifted. I was in gifted and talented classes the entire time. And often as you, as I grew and in, in the classes went from fifth grade to middle school and from middle school to high school, I was one of the only black children in there. Mm-hmm. So the immense pressure from, oh, the family's already got the pressure on you, then show up and be in a space where you continually meet stereotypes and meet people put it projecting their own conception of what blackness is and, and whether or not black men or, or black boys can be intelligent on you. And it's like, hey, I'm just trying to show up and say that I can read the same J.D. Salinger that you all are reading and have great thoughts just like anyone else. And then in that same time frame, so I'm in gifted and talented classes and in fifth grade, they saw an art talent in me. So from in fifth grade, I was told to apply to an art middle school and I got in. And from sixth grade to the end of 12th grade, I was educated in a fine arts education while I was also in my gifted and talented liberal arts classes. So my mom did everything possible to keep me in these very expensive public schools, but art supplies cost. Like art pencils are $2 a pencil. Mm-hmm. So to be as resourced as I am now to say I have a studio where I can paint and do everything I want in my life, it's beautiful because 
I remember how hard it was. Like there was a time in, and I'm fast forwarding through now, just pointing at 10 years old, I dedicated my life to something for the first time. Well, at seven, I dedicated my life to Christ. At 10, I dedicated my life to art. So from then on, it's like, I just want to do this. And then life got harder for us. And as we were in, uh, and, and to be quite fair, some of the timeline escapes me at times because it was like there was this ebb and flow. I remember my mom was doing well and then things had happened. And to be fair, uh, results of domestic violence situations, we, we just, and, and not with my father, but we, we just couldn't, we, we ended up homeless, houseless. And my mom, being the phenomenal individual that she was, um, she ended up driving a cab. And driving a cab to make sure that we were not in a shelter. She never wanted to go on welfare. She she just had very specific ideas around what would happen to her, a woman with all the potential she has, a woman who, you know, for, again, graduated high school at 15, had all of the, the opportunities in the world, despite her even not having a father from age four. She had very specific ideas about what would happen if she was to go into that system and what she'd be capable of trying to play catch up and trying to stay, you know, within the brackets of, of what was allowable income just to make it. So every day she got out and hustled and she, you know, for, I'd say maybe 80% of those nights, I want to believe it was 80% of the nights because I've blocked out some of the darker times, but 80% of that time it was, Hey, we made enough to stay in this hotel tonight. And at times it would be, it would be difficult. I mean, it was always difficult for me to honor that, but, it would be exceptionally difficult because at times it's like she's got to make that money. So you have to pay the taxi company because it's not like she owns the cab. So you're renting the cab every single day. You have to make their money first and then you can make money for you to sustain yourself. And, and it is just a, a, a sustainment and subsistence life. Like, okay, did I make enough to feed me and my kid right now? Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Well, if the hotel at the Ramada Inn is $54 tonight and it's like, okay, can I make that? And how do I just catch up? And it taught me an incredible amount of just resilience. It's what I model in my ability to hustle, my ability to handle so many things, my ability to, to never face a no. Like it's the, like, what is the yes in that? No, because it can't possibly be just, no, I saw my mom turn every no into a, give me something else. Like what's the substitute good. If I can't get the complimentary good, what is the substitute in exchange for this? Just it was impressive. And at that same time, I'm in art school, so I'm having to find a way to do my paintings when we may not get the money for the hotel until 12 midnight. Right. Or we may not get money for a hotel that night, and we might just be in the car sleeping at the rest stop that night. And I'm still required to show up to school and be smart then and not let anyone know. So I, maybe my guidance counselors knew. Um, because at a certain point, it's like, hey, we can't afford for me to be excellent in art. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I need some help. And there were some wonderful people who showed human kindness and had some conversations without letting any other students know that Zen needs a little extra care. And that's equity. Um, I mean, just what do I need to be as successful as everyone else, given where I am right now? And they helped me in that. And, and let me do a time check because I'm sure I'm getting so much life story. But um, we're going to unpack they, it, Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> So they helped me in that and I was getting clay for free finally so I can do my sculptures. But I remember sculpting kind of one of the last sculptures I ever sculpted actually was done in the seat, passing the side of the taxi because I didn't have anywhere to go for it. And how so, old were you at this at this point? Like 16. Mm-hmm. Yeah, high school age by now. Um, and 
you know, it's, I, I still performed, but by all, by all measures, graduating high school was a Herculean task and was something to be celebrated. I, and I've never really celebrated it because the expectation was to keep going. And you kind of mentioned the same thing um, about celebrating small wins. And it was not a small win, but uh, it very it very much resonated with me because I never really said, oh, you know, I was challenged to get to these points. I was gifted, but I was also challenged. And graduated high school. I said, oh, I've got to go to college. And this is as I was, you know, so like didn't grow up with means. That was obvious in what I've said. So I didn't have a computer in my home. Um, while my mom went to college, we didn't really talk about college. It was an expectation. You're going to go to college. Mm-hmm. But there wasn't a lot of like, what's this decision? How do you make it? So it's February of 2005. Yeah. Uh, yeah. February 2005. I'm graduating in, in June um, and school would start in August. and that's when I applied to college. So like way late, some of definitely my fault, but you know, I wish I had a little more guidance around that stuff and I didn't. So I applied to five schools. And at the time I had been dating a girl who was looking at HBCUs and I had been around her family and her family were all HBCU graduates. Like it sounds kind of cool. I had never heard of an HBCU before. Like this is not something we talked about in my home. And I looked online at HBCUs and I saw a couple that whose deadlines hadn't passed. So I applied to Morehouse, Clark Atlanta, and Xavier, Louisiana. And um, I also applied to Drexel and maybe also Hampton. So I thought I wanted to be an architect. That was the only way that I thought that I can go and make money off of art because at this time I was also faced with the decision. All of my peers were going to Maryland Institute College of Art or I had a, a, an amazing peer, Abby Farah, who went to go to UPenn to study art. And I was like, this sounds awesome. I can't afford to go to school for art. Artists do not make money until they die. Life is not easy for me. How do I go and get a degree that will get you paid? So architecture was the only lane I thought where I could maybe do both still, but ended up uh, getting into every school I applied to on Facebook decisions. Mom's like, well, like throwing school was out left and right the schools that even gave me money, but for some reason, Morehouse was the one that resonated with us. And I had never been to Atlanta before. So you had, um, this so, is like sight unseen. This is just where I'm applying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sight unseen, look on the website. Martin Luther King went there. That looks good enough for me. Let me try that. So then I get there and um, like we, we I'm going to just say it. I think we got evicted right before college started. So I'm coming out of an eviction. Like we were houseless. I remember having a place to stay, senior prom. Mm. By the time I went to college, I did not have a place to stay. Um, so we, you know, I had a job though, and and I, I was able to make ends meet in that summer. But uh, we, so you get to go into Morehouse, sight unseen. I wasn't resourced enough. We just didn't have the money, even if it wasn't an eviction type of situation. I know we didn't have the money for the setup that I saw some of my peers who were moving in on moving day had. So we went like my, even my blanket um, for my college dorm room was from the family dollar down the block in Atlanta in the West End. It was like a $5 family dollar comforter was what I'm coming from. I didn't have a laptop. Like I did, I went to the, the public library to apply to Morehouse and all of the other schools, didn't have a laptop. But I, in that summer, I um, had entered a painting competition. The NAACP had a painting competition called AXA or a full competition for different STEM and art things. And I won third place nationally and I won my laptop and a thousand dollars. So I got that laptop and a five dollar blanket. It's like, okay, now I'm resourced to go try to start college. Um, started, didn't have a roommate, but with with the the blessing blessing in more houses that you inherit brothers instantly. So 
I am an only child that got plotted in Atlanta and I instantly inherited the 500 brothers in my, my first year class. And then I went in Grace Hall, which was the honors and scholarship dorm. And even that is even like a little fraternity within the brotherhood that you already get. And the reason I'm here today is because Stuart Cornelius was one of those individuals. And he did your podcast a couple months ago. And I guess he raised my name. It's like, hey, another story of Black triumph over tragedy like me. And there were so many young men in that space of Morehouse who were just revolutionary and brilliant and had been gifted their whole lives, whether or not they were told that, and they walk on the, you know, the red clay of Georgia and these these foothills of Georgia behind the greatest minds of our times. And, and, and it's like to be incubated in that and to sit around that and to have people intentionally pour into you in that entire time when there were many times when I didn't feel loved. I didn't feel like, you know, I felt love from my mom for sure, but it felt like there was no place for me in the world. And especially when things are so transient, like the time that I'm washing up before school in the, in the bathroom of the laundromat, like with a bar of soap, not wanting anyone to come knock on the door, you don't feel loved in that moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and, whew, and you know, it, it's, uh, it, so Morehouse gave me love and, and showed it to me from a very specific lens of blackness. And then while I was there, I also amplified skills and learned some stuff and all of that. And then, in my senior year, I said, well, now I got to figure this thing out. I was there for economics the whole time. And then I said, well, let me figure out what I want to do. And it was another one of those resource decisions. Um, like the first year, I thought I wanted to go be a lawyer. Then I started realizing how expensive Morehouse was. So I took a $32,000 private loan out to cover that first year. And we, I mean, it was just tough to even get there. So again, applied late, all the scholarships were gone. I had the SAT scores that would have given me scholarships. Mm-hmm. And I had decent upgrades, you know, cause especially if they had known all the things I had gone through to get that above 3.0, but it's, it, it wasn't, it, it wasn't easy. And then I'm thinking, okay, well, I can't really afford to go to law school if this scholarship thing happens the way it did. So I switched to economics and thought I'll go with these other guys who are going to get business careers. And I, so the, another, so much that happened. I'm like, yeah, I'm like, so well, there's let's, another, let's pause here before we, we talk about let's do it your career, because you've really just talked about this trajectory with so much trauma baked in um, and thinking about, you know, for our listener base, which is expanding our core sort of audience, they look like you and me um, have similar upbringings and stories, but we do have those who can't relate to these kinds of stories as well, who support the show. And I want to unpack a little bit more the economic impact of, say, a domestic violence situation or something else, because thinking about the brilliance of your mother and having gone to college and trade school, the minute somebody hears an electrician, the first thing we, you know, we may think is union, you get paid really well, you're never without work. So yeah. I want to unpack a little bit that economic instability in high school and really how that came about, given how smart your mother was and the skills that she, the actual mm-hmm. trade skills that she picked up along the way. Yeah. So, uh, and another thing I need to add for context is that my mom is, is permanently partially disabled. So, mm-hmm. uh, and that's a confusing term, but part of her body is, uh, is permanently disabled. So she is a person with a disability and and which, you know, interestingly enough, I do equity work, but I never talk about this at work. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and, and I support all of our business resource groups. As you said, we'll get there later, but one of those is focused on disability. And my mom, at around age five, when we moved to Baltimore, she had got injured. So mm. again, supporting her young son, carrying galvanized steel pipes up in a, in a commercial building where it was a commercial bank she was wiring, she got injured. And that injury set us on a different trajectory, uh, right? She, she did get a settlement from the union and then can't really speak this. I'm still young there. So my memory of what was happening beyond that, I can't really speak to. Um, but it, it just became harder. She moved somewhere where, the, where financially it should have been easier, but it just became harder. And then you add in uh, the, the domestic violence portion of it, where my mom made a decision to exit a situation that just didn't serve her. And, you know, I, I don't, I got a story that has drugs and violence and domestic violence and all that stuff. And I don't choose to speak specifically about things. And I know at times it makes other people's minds wander. Interestingly enough, my mom's calling me right now, um, but <laughs> the spirit touched her. Um, but I, um, I, I just, so I'm not, I'm going to skirt over that, but I just want to be clear that it happened and, and it was real. And my mom made a decision in a moment to leave a situation that didn't serve her. And then that impacted us greatly. Mm-hmm. And in that impact, right, it's, it's one thing to think about having a house over your head as something that just, it, I think we take it for granted so often, just a roof over your head and the stability of being able to return to the same place every night. And that's what home is, that, that return and the familiarity in that return and the invitation to go back to that same space. And when that is absent, then you have my mom playing catch up, trying to make it happen again. Uh, then you have the fact that you've got you've to live, you've got to eat every day. Um, she was trying to make sure that visibly I wasn't houseless or homeless. So we're paying like, hey, we got to get clothes on his back that look the same as they looked before because we don't want the kids in school to tease him. So even that performance is like, I'm not only thinking of playing this part of the kid who's, ha- who's happy and has everything at home that he needs to perform. Then it's like, okay, well, when I get off today of school, when I'm doing the homework, like, hey, I want to help my mom. Or eventually as I got older, like 15 and a half, 16, I did get my own job. And it's like, how are we we were engaged in the struggle together and supporting one another. And then also trying to support the individual lives that we were leading for both of us to become successful. Um, and in the areas where we needed to be successful and kind of that, that economic or socioeconomic instability really does put you on. It, it just puts people behind. Right. And it's a, it recently at work, I actually had my story shared and, and, not as I'm giving you way more detail than I actually gave them, uh, but I, I gave the a little bit more than the safer work version and really explain things about what my life is like. Like my childhood best friend is in prison right now and has been there for the last 15 years. And he recently told me, I just talked to him like two days ago, we talk all the time. And he told me, hey man, your your success in life, which I often don't appreciate as success because I'm still in this, there's the next thing to get to, right? Yeah. That grind mode. and it, it, at times you forget the gratitude and, and the progress. So like your success, I look at you and it shows me that it could have gone a different way for people like us. And to the question you're asking about the audience members who maybe cannot understand what it's like and who maybe see me or see like, hey, this guy has got a hundred sneakers behind him, whatever that is, you know, or see me outside of this conversation and see the person I show up to be today and not the experiences behind that person. 
it's something that most people can't even imagine yet so many people that look like us unfortunately can connect to because it's happened to our community absolutely and, or or we have a cousin that we've seen that's been imprisoned or we've seen somebody lose their home because their you know their dad was beating their mom or their mom was engaged in something like their dad was doing drugs selling drugs like i've got so many of those stories from friends from cousins from just it, that was just our neighborhood that was our community and if you weren't in it, you were one or two people removed and the impacts reverberate so broadly throughout your network. I have a cousin who's our mutual cousin murdered, his best friend murdered, uh, you know, parents not necessarily able to show up the way that they needed to show up in life in every single space. Just like, and, and again, to see him triumph, I looked at him as an example and said, if you could do it, because again, everybody's mud story is different. I'm looking like, hey, you had parents that had different challenges than my parents. And if you could get that and other people would look at it from the outside and say, well, anything like that, I don't know how it would have overcame. But when that abnormality is your everyday, mm-hmm. it, it's just, it, it just makes you, I don't know, it, it it grows you in a way that you never would expect to grow. You, and I hope that no one ever has to grow, but it gives you kind of these six, seventh and eighth senses about how to navigate the world because you had to navigate an exceptionally scarier world at an early time. And uh, when we talk about just the appropriate resourcing, the three, so on my whiteboard uh, behind me for my company, three causes is incarceration. Uh, my charitable focus is incarceration, single moms and homelessness, mm-hmm. because those are the three that impacted me the most. And when you don't have a father present in the home to also support his partner, right? Like my mom had to be going through emotional turmoil right. to try to do all of this for just for a child. And not only that, she's got to stuff her feelings down to show up for me as a strong person every single day. Uh, she's got to live in the trauma and try to figure out how to get out of it. <laughs> you just, you, that effect on performance every day. When I got to, to Boeing, uh, I, I was broke, typical mm-hmm. of my life. So I got to Boeing and I had a $51,500 offer letter. But that doesn't mean you get $51,000 on that day. So when I got there, I had like $20 in my pocket. I moved to St. Louis, knew no one there. And they gave me $29 a day per DM. And then uh, for two weeks. So it was like eating three meals of this, roughly $10 per meal. Uh, like, And they gave a rental car. So I didn't have a car. I graduated college with a 3.75, didn't get an envelope with money, any of that stuff that you hear many of these graduates get and my non-black counterparts did often have to start life. I started in a rotation program where they had it, where many of them had homes already. Right. And I worked two weeks in a hole to get a one week check just to get an apartment. I had things on my credit from my childhood that made it exceptionally hard to get the credit. I mean, to get the apartment and I wasn't even sure that I could get it. Then it's like, well, now I got to figure out a car. So I'm working in a hole the whole time just to end all those you know, all of that 51,000 was going into trying to dig out and I came with magnanimous amount of loans. <laughs> so it's, it's just been an upward climb. And when we talk about giving people a fighting chance and a fair start at life, I think you really have to assess that when you're in certain spaces. And this is me flying the corporate flag now, but you really do need to assess how people are starting in life because there are, I had systemic barriers. I had things that were in the way and while I had opportunity, and maybe at times an equal opportunity, I don't know that I had an equitable chance at ending up at the same space that others could have and have ended up at. And I'm so happy you provided all that context, because I think often those of us who work in these corporate spaces were celebrated as having 
arrived or made it, even though we know we're on the grind, you know, and especially when you start to get a little bit vulnerable and share Mm -hmm. uh, a piece of your story, particularly for like the bleeding heart liberal folks, uh, they're like, you know, they want to celebrate that, which it should be celebrated to your point, but they don't realize that this is not a destination. Many of us are dealing Mm -hmm. with generational barriers and the effects of that have reverberated. So in addition to everything you've mentioned on this $51,500 job, also, I think, you know, I, I would talk to friends. I remember in law school and, you know, they'd say, oh, my parents are are coming to town. and You know, they're staying at a hotel. <laughs> something as simple mm-hmm. as that, like, like they're staying at a hotel to come see you when they have a, you have a whole apartment that they pay for. Yeah. And they're like, well, yeah, they don't want to intrude because they know that I have to study or they want to be comfortable or it it's. They start these jobs with the home, with the inheritance, with the trust fund, things that have been Mm -hmm. shares in companies, things that have been prepared for them from the time they're born. When many of us, not all, but many of us have the opposite story in that, okay, not only do I have to set myself up, when is my phone going to ring with someone needing help financially? Or my parents might need this or or this, uh, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. And so you end up in this cycle of like, not only am I starting behind, but my money has to go farther and spread to more people because I now feel an obligation to help those who sowed into me who have not reaped financial benefit. Yeah. And all of these things impact your ability to generate wealth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like, um, so you are showing up and you're around folks who so we know that in the black community we're more the expectation is that we take care of our adult parents whereas in other communities and specifically the white community adult children are still taking care of other parents in many ways yes and when you look at it in the way that you just explained it right they're showing up with trust funds they're showing up with all these other things and then you're not just starting behind but your dollars that you're going to get are already earmarked kind of yeah. what you're saying right like i i know that somebody's going to come up and ask for this that or the third and then even that comfort of their parents coming and going to stay in a hotel the entire time mostly the entire time there was a bit of time when my mom had moved to georgia and we lived together but for most of the time when i was in college especially to start going home was scary to me there was no comfort in going home and i had to take off my first semester of sophomore year because we couldn't afford to stay in Morehouse. So mm-hmm. already it was like, I just did this thing for a year. I had just come off a 4.0 semester. I thought it was amazing. I was like, I, I, I know how to do this now. And then it was like, well, you're too broke to go back. And you don't have the scholarships. So you had to make a decision. And I was I went back to Brooklyn because after high school, my mom relocated back to New York. So back to Brooklyn for the summer and I'm working at Foot Locker. And then when I realized, oh, wait, I can't go back to school. It's like, whoa, I've got to figure out what to do with my life. And it's permanent. And there was a time there where like my mom and I were staying in a, we were renting a room in somebody's brownstone, but it was a basement apartment with no, no window. So I'm just sleeping on the same bed with my mom at 17, 18, when I just had this huge dorm room, right? So it's, it's, it just completely will, will warp your mind or not, not necessarily warp it, but it'll completely shake up your head and say, whoa, what am I doing here? And how do I get back to this point of what I thought was a path of success, whereas other people don't have those barriers to succeeding or they just don't have to carry that with them of where's the next meal going to come from or what am I, you know, how do I support my parents who I feel like, to your point, like I feel like it's kind of old Mm -hmm. or or that's just, it's not that it's an expectation from the parent. It's how we're raised in our community, right? And we are, as Black people, are 
very communal where other people aren't as collectivist and uh, and and our non-black counterparts who aren't from those collectivist cultures are allowed to be individualists. And what I mean is like mainstream American culture is I'm out for myself. Yes. <laughs> like, this is I'm I'm allowed to go and get the things that I want to get in life. And we're not afforded that same allowance often. Uh, so, yeah, it's it's one of those things where I've been very intentional with sharing the story recently because I need people to know. And it gets weird because you know, I don't want it to be a sob story. I don't want the focus to be on the trouble. I want the focus to be on how do we really meet people where they are mm-hmm. on a daily day, on a daily basis. You get how do you meet that even from just even a general human kindness standpoint. I don't know everything that it took to be Delisha to show up to be you, to get through law school, to do what you do, to do this podcast daily, to get up and say, I'm going to put on my makeup today. Like, I don't know what it took for you to do that in that morning or, you know, it's the afternoon now. So maybe you did it just before, like me, I was trying to figure out my hair. So like it, but you don't know what it took a person to become or, or to be who they are in the moment that they meet you. And sometimes when you meet a person that's less than their best self back to that work in progress, uh, it's because they ha- they're dealing with a lot of stuff. Like we're all dealing with life and this human experience that is extremely hard. And when you have a life that you feel is driven by purpose, you are also dealing with the the requirements of your assignment here. And sometimes that's also tough on us and just that pressure. And then all of the things in life that are feeding into that pressure is, is kind of why I think I'm so focused on intentional self-care as well mm-hmm. and making sure that we are really keeping a pulse on keeping ourselves well and really balancing that wellness star. And and I believe in calibration more than balance, put it in balance. And then whenever it feels like it's rotating out, you calibrate it, but you have to take care of yourself because all of us are here again, living in this very, look at this pandemic existence, this very intense experience with so much happening outside of ourselves while trying to heal what's been going on inside of ourselves for many, many years. Absolutely. Uh, so, bit of word vomit. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, no. And the other thing I, I do want to raise is that is relevant to your story that I can absolutely relate to is just the work of trying to appear as if everything is okay to the outside world, which is, which is mm-hmm. always a job on top of whatever it is that you're tasked with doing. Being be it education, be it you know high school, college, work. You're you're playing two roles at one time. You're doing the job you were hired to mm-hmm. do, and trying to get the grades. And also trying to make sure that nobody realizes what's happening underneath the surface, which I, I don't think is healthy, of course, at all. And it's part of what it's drives not. me. <laughs> yeah, which which it's part of what drives me to do this show and creating safe spaces to have really candid conversations about the personal battles that people have faced. And I understand the conversations you might have had with your mother with respect to like, what are you disclosing? Right? Because mm-hmm. as a culture. We also shroud all this stuff in secrecy and speaking to your experience as a child or grandchild of people who may have struggled or had difficulty sometimes can feel like from the older generation's perspective, an attack on character or not Mm -hmm. as they may have experienced it or, you know, feeling like people may see them as deficient and not realizing that these are just to your again, to your point, circumstances that we've all been met with that we're just trying to overcome. Whatever Mm -hmm. hand you were dealt that you've had to work through to get where you are, you've done that. And there's nothing wrong with being honest about that. And it doesn't mean that that someone has missed the mark or could have done more. It's just the nature of the beast, quite frankly. And and I'm so I'm celebrating you. You called it word vomit, but I'm celebrating you just (laughs) 
being so so open and honest about that because these conversations need to happen more. And I do think they feed into what you do professionally and are an important part of the conversation around diversity, equity, and inclusion, giving people a more stark and candid look into what people may have had to overcome to get to the point that they are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's incredible because in the work that I do specifically, like, first of all, I love my job. Mm-hmm. And it's been a long time since I felt like I've, I've said that with such fervor. Like, I walk through the house every day, leaving the computer, like, you know, I'm just feeling good. Like, this, is, I did something today. I made an impact. And the storytelling is so paramount to that impact. So sharing authentic stories about human challenges, because we all experience human challenges, regardless of if you're a woman of color, you are a person with a disability, if you're from the Native American community, just like all these different intersections of identity that create us as, create who we are as humans and who we show up to be daily, create challenges because people choose to see difference as a challenge rather than something to be embraced and and understood. So you have these systems and structures in place in the world that seek and root out or seek to root out difference instead of valuing and, and, and leveraging difference for the power that we can have. So every single day I'm doing this work where I'm hearing people share their stories and they're sharing these heart-wrenching stories of trauma and telling you about everything they face just to show up and, and the members of their community face. And there are so many people engaged in, in movements and struggles simultaneously, right? Just social justice, human civil rights struggles where it's kind of the most innervating work I've all I've ever done. So as much as it energizes me and it makes me feel great, it's also training because you're just as I'm an empath, uh, you can't experience the things that I've experienced in life without feeling deeply for other humans. And I had to learn to create the space rather than holding on to the space because it's it's where you hear these stories in order to go and take action and fix some of these heart-wrenching and just raw tender stories that people tell about the systems in place at a hundred year old company or the inequity and biases that they face every day, just showing up or things like, Hey, then you showed up and, and you had a beard. And I felt like I was allowed to grow the hair that grows out of my face at this company for once. I'm like, wait, like I'm sorry. You didn't think that you were allowed to do that. And it's, it's real though, because to the point you were making, we look at the world and we see what the world appears to be inviting. And when you look at a corporate environment, it says, it does not appear that there are people who look like me. So I made it through, but it's like, how long can I stay here if I'm me? So let me try to modify my appearance. Let me put on the mask Mm -hmm. so that I can show up and have people feel comfortable with my background and who I show up as I, as every day, excuse me. And I, so my first piece of artwork, once that, so I didn't do any art the entire time I was at Morehouse. I kind of skipped that. So from graduating high school until four years later, didn't touch any art. Got to my first job at Boeing, hated it. Mind-numbingly boring. I was in this finance program. It's the reason I'm an HR dude now and not in finance. Uh, I was in a finance program, rotational. And the company was a, is, is an amazing company, extremely cool, um, like great mission. We do amazing things with the products. But the work I was doing was mind-numbingly boring. So I went to Michael's, picked up a piece of paper and some charcoal and just drew out my feelings for the first time in four years. And what I drew was something called the corporate mask. It's the most important piece of artwork I've ever done. I will never sell it. And it's a charcoal drawing, which is raw emotion. And it's me peeling off 
my this face. I'm in work clothes, so a button-down shirt, my eyeglasses, and I'm peeling off his face to reveal a me under there. And that's what we often have to do is we're masking in this corporate environment. And the relief that I feel now showing up as who I am authentically every day, but I've legitimately re- removed the mask and it's like, well, now I get to show up and be a superhero every day. So I took off a mask and I get to put on my costume daily. It's like, who do I want to show up and be? Like, what power, what gift do I want to give this world now? When I show up, okay, well, I want to give them my gift of critical analysis today that I've always had, but I was shuddering it because I was losing the ability to be critically and analytical by having to put on a mask and having to modify myself. So just that ability to freely be yourself unlocks so much of your power. Mm-hmm. It, it it allows you to just show up. Authenticity doesn't just mean how you dress and how you look. It's everything in your being and being able to employ all of those things in your being to affect this world positively. So now it's like, well, I can show up and the more comfortable I am, the more I'm in these slippers and luxury pajamas that I want to wear here, then I can really show up and affect some change for this company. And it's through that storytelling, the people that have shared things and just saying, we need to go make a change. And then me being able to think critically and say, how do I build a strategy to support the people who are hurting over here? And it's just like, how do you, it's, it's, a, it's a lovely marriage of both empathy and being logical and methodical. Because <laughs> sometimes, you know, and, and you would understand, especially in these startup spaces, like sometimes did you use your head? Like, yeah. does this make sense? Or is this a blaring thing that you should have just known you can't say this about people or do this to people? And uh, yeah, it's, I don't know what else to say on the job beyond the fact that 13 years. So my entire adult life, I've been at Boeing since I started. So I've given 13 years of my adult life to changing a 106 year old company. And I am actually seeing measurable change now from the efforts that I do. And I think some of that is the privileges being in senior leadership. You actually have power to go and do things and, and, and you can actually influence others to move. And I, I can say, I don't think I would have the ability to affect change if I didn't have the ability to show up as me every day. So it's just critical. And I have to say, when I you know saw your LinkedIn photo and when I got the notes on you, you sound like a, a DEI a person who's a senior leader in DEI at a young company, let me just say it, or specifically in the tech world. Like I would have never put that with yeah. a company that's over a hundred years old. So I do want to dig into a little bit more deeply how you made the transition from finance to HR and simultaneously how this evolution of showing up as your self really played out while you're going through that career progression as well. All right. So uh, came to Boeing in a finance rotation program. So uh, by all intents and purposes, was supposed to have been a high potential top talent person. Uh, so was blessed to get into that program. And I started there rotating. So in that first two years at the company, I rotated every four months. So I had six jobs by the time I came to year two. And obviously, many companies have these types of programs. It wasn't the most diverse at the time. And the company was not really diverse to me at the time. We still have our own challenges right now and our information is public. (laughs) So like our public report says that there are only 6.9% black people at the Mm -hmm. company and it's a 140,000 employee company. So when you looked up, there weren't, especially 13 years ago, there weren't many images of people who look like me and especially in finance leadership. So instantly found it hard, like, oh, I'm capable of this, but I don't love it. And the beauty of that rotation program is that you get breath 
versus depth there. So I got to learn a lot of the company in two years and say, well, I learned a lot of what I don't want to do. Right. And I did find that I was I was in St. Louis. I had no family there. I was trying to build a network. Coming from a city like Atlanta to, to slow St. Louis, which is a big difference for a 21-year-old man. And the the culture there just wasn't as metropolitan and, and just as diverse as I was used to. So I was like, well, I got to get out of here. So I moved to Philadelphia upon graduating the program and uh, started a financial analysis career. And in that financial analysis career, it was like, that's the one function I kind of liked out of the other things I did. But to me, it would be closer to family was the decision I had to make mm-hmm. and moved to Philadelphia, started doing that for about four years or so and had a bunch of various roles while there. But the most career changing thing was that I entered a, I entered a development program again. So not a functional development program like the one I was in maybe four years prior, but this was a development program aimed at it's called the Emerging Leaders Development Program. So aimed at leaders who would be emerging. So again, not unlike my life of being tracked in high school or, or middle school and stuff, it's like I'm in a track now. At least that's what I was understanding. So, okay, this guy did fairly all right. He wrote some good essays. Let's put him in this program. And that accelerated my leadership tremendously because it gave me an opportunity to lead without a title and without authority often and get direct direct input from leaders and sit under the tutelage of many executives who would come and just drop gems on us. And every gem they were dropping, I was adding to my leadership tool belt. So I am a sponge and I can retain all this info and then figure out how I can go apply it. And then this, this program gave me projects to go and apply that leadership to. And one project in there, in my first year, I did a an employee engagement project with my HR generalist. And it was a year-long project. Within that project, the, probably the turning point of my career was that I did a webcast of 5,000 employees live. And I'm sitting up there with vice presidents and directors, all executives. I'm a, a, I'm a level three individual contributor, not like not at all, even mid-career yet, still just above early career. And none of the people in this room were black. Mm-hmm. Um, I had to think through it. There was one person of color, I believe. And it's not very diverse, right? This is the but top leaders of the company saying, you come and talk to us about engaging employees. And I killed the webcast. Uh, they, they, they were coming up to me. It was one of the first times in my life where you were very articulate, did not feel like a backhanded compliment because mm-hmm. I knew the person, the people saying it were like, no, we could not have done it in that way. And it was authentic. And it gave me the boost I needed. And it also said, I like talking about people. So I set my career path on trying to make a change and felt like if this company has invested in me from a human capital standpoint and all these programs thus far, eventually I can get there. And Boeing is definitely a place where you don't have to maintain the same career. It's a lifetime, a lifelong employer. Like mm-hmm. I'm on my 13th job in 13, 13, 13th job title in 13 years. Wow. So I've done a lot of different things. People say, you know, this is kind of unicornish to be 34 and the millennial generation is still at the same company for 13 years. But I've done so many different things. I've had so many different careers. And the pivot to finance, or the pivot from finance to HR was basically I did a project was getting developed. Eventually, I became the leader of that program, so got more leadership skills. And the program had had 135 individuals in there, maybe 10 of us black. Um, and these are the leaders of tomorrow. And eventually, I became the chair. And it's like, well, I'm leading the leaders. I think I'm ready to lead people. And I applied to a program called the Boeing Leadership Rotation Program, which is uh, they. I'm getting more comfortable with the self compassion to say, like, hey, I deserve to say some of these things that are. Might sound a little braggadocious, but 1% of people got into that program. Mm-hmm. So 700 people applied, only seven got into my cohort, and I'm one of them. So I'm one of the 1% in a program that is 
built upon accelerating your leadership. So in your first role, they place you somewhere with which you have no familiarity. So I went from seven years of finance to say, go be a supplier management leader mm-hmm. and it's to see if you are a good leader and not a good functionally excellent person. So I learned commercial supplier management and it, it actually has helped me in my own business, which if I impart any wisdom with anyone today, especially those who are early in their career, do not work for a company your whole life without taking those skills and applying them to your personal life or whatever your own passion and business is. So everything I do in my business with learning supply chain, I've done it for a business that's a $100 billion business. So why can't I apply it to my small business? Right. So everything I learned along the way, financial forecasting, my risk management, it's all from things I've learned at Boeing that I've applied to my personal life and business. And uh, moving into HR, I was like, well, I went to that supplier management role and said, you all put me here, but my next one, I want to go to HR. And in 2018, I finally landed as a manager in HR. I was like, this is my sweet spot. I want to be here forever. And then eventually, two years later, I ended up leading the program I was in. So mm-hmm. upon graduation from the program at the September 2019 pivot where I went 100% virtual, I ended up leading. They were like, you know, you're awesome. We loved your ideas, how you showed up in this program. It was one of the first times I actually kind of got tapped to go into a job rather than fighting and interviewing because to get in that program was like a, a six-week process. Um, and then I get in, I'm the first black person to lead the program in its 10 year history. Wow. We have increased the diversity in the program. So my first year we hired 14 people, four of them were black and I'm freaking out. I was like, Oh my gosh, y'all are going to fire me. And I'm talking to my boss and she's like, what are you talking about? Zam? like, is it weird that I hire four black people? Are they going to look at the black program manager? Say you hire four black people. You just let them all in. And She's like, man, you're crazy. She's like, if anybody thinks that, she's like, there would be a real problem. She's like, and and beyond that, she's like, even if they think it, they certainly can't say it. She's like, right. It just gave me again in that moment, like, no, we did the right. And I did not select these people because they were black. It's crazy that I'm even worried that four out of 14 people might sound like too much. But that's just how non-diverse the company had felt in certain spaces. So then the next year, um, I think in the last year, actually, the entire class ended up being, well, three, 75% of the class ended up being Black. Uh, and then it's like in the, uh, many other facets of diversity, of course, within that program, but just the increase in the intentional focus on not just the diversity of the participants, but also I helped them to focus on inclusive leadership as a skill set. So that was, let's look at what it means to really lead with heart from a servant leadership standpoint or, or people-oriented leadership standpoint, and also what does it mean to make a space where everybody feels like they can belong mm-hmm. and how do we employ that? And now I went from that job to this senior leadership role in our diversity, equity, and inclusion organization, kind of taking all of that stuff, all of that I didn't belong in the past, all of that I don't see spaces for me, I'm hearing stories from other people, and putting that into a role where now I serve I guess my, totally, it's like 13,000 members of all of our employee resource groups. We call them business resource groups, and there are, of which there are nine. So some of them are racially or ethnically aligned. We have one for the LGBTQIA plus community. We have the focus on disability, um, generations and ages, and women as well. I think I've and then all the major uh, ethnic and racial demographics. And every day, I'm actually getting to make a change for all of the historically underrepresented <laughs> people across the, the planet. And it is a truly global organization. So last year, we like increased 44% of our membership outside of the US. Um, it, it's just, it's like every day I wake up and say, okay, what, what true luck costume am I putting on? Because I wear my own hoodies that I design every day to work. 
It's like, okay, how do I solve problems and how do I diversify and include to make the world better? And it was taking on the special projects. I think I just kind of skirted around your question. Sorry, so I'll be more succinct. Taking on the special projects, getting that additional extracurricular development, um, applying to the opportunities. Like one critical thing, that management program I got in, I got rejected initially. Mm. Um, they they didn't accept my resume. And I was like, well, I just did this program that told me I was developing pretty well. And to ascend to the height of leading that program, I must have messed up. So I sent an email saying, respectfully, I think you all made a mistake for these reasons and listed off the things that I thought I had illustrated on my resume. Whatever happened magically in the background, I got put back in the process. And then that was all just a, I fasted for the entire six weeks. and was just a prayer and meditation. And that's been my process for every job. Mm. So even the job I have now, I apparently did not get the job at first. Um, someone else got it in decline and that person chose to tell me that they got it in decline, which I, at one point in time I felt their way about. And now I look at it as God needed me to hear that that was a part of my testimony, that I did not get the job. So um, it, initially I got demoted the day before, no fault of my own, but like company was changing, culture was shifting, they collapsed management layers. So after I went through this program to be a manager, I got told I was going to be demoted and I was just shook. And uh, it was the first time that my wife's actually seen me shaken. She's, mm. she's like, I've, because of everything I've ever been through, she's never seen me just shut down. It was like, well, I'd been dedicating everything for the last 11 and a half, 12 years to be a manager. And it's like, now I'm not one after all of it, for no reason that I, like, I didn't underperform. So felt my feelings for a night. The next morning I was like, well, what are we going to do? I started contacting people. And then it, I found out that I got kind of the next step in this process mm -hmm. for the DEI job that I was in. And I was considering leaving the company before I got this job. Um, not because, not for lack of opportunity, but I was feeling, feeling pulled to do something else and to impact the world in, the, in a much bigger way through art. And I said, oh, you know, and then it just kind of floated across my desk that this job opened up and serendipity, kismet, whatever you want to call it, would have it. I'm there now through another seven week process, prayer and fasting. And it's like, I feel like I am continuing to walk in my purpose mm -hmm. because I'm reaching out for all of these things. Uh, again, glorifying God. I got to meet God where he is oh, and, and and reach out and meet and sacrifice and give up some things to get what I'm trying to get. And through all of this, this habit of sacrifice, of of understanding that there is more and there's greater things, I've been kind of reminding myself all year, this phrase or mantra, patience and perspective in pursuit of purpose. Mm. And Everything doesn't always come to us immediately, but if you are patient and you really truly do focus on gaining perspective and really looking at things with hindsight, foresight, you know, focus, clarity, all of those things that make a perspective, that's what you need in pursuit of your purpose and you will live a purpose-driven life. So I'm here now in a job that where I was going to leave because I felt like I could impact more people. I'm actually now impacting 13,000 daily with the types of decisions I make. And then I sit on a leadership team that impacts the whole 14, excuse me, 140,000 employee company through our combined EDI leadership decisions and strategy. So to do that and then the, to, in, in my free time, go and build messages around DEI and, you know, in my artwork and clothing, it just, it feels like I get to show up every day and be the same person in almost every space. Which is so rare for a lot of us uh, in these corporate environments. But I, I have to ask before we talk about the work that you do outside in art and design, uh, was there a specific moment on the journey where you just showed up one day and said, this is me? 
with the clothing, oh, yeah, the hair, sorry. all of that, or was it like kind of a slow little thing? little circuitous in this conversation? My bad. Um, so, uh, yeah, there was there in that leadership development program. There was a guy who, at the time, was an executive. He's an, he was a director of communications, and he was a director attached to a a high ranking CEO VP type of official. And so, by all means, he knew what the corporate image was, mm-hmm. and that was his job to tell people what the corporate image is. And I'm sitting in this room full of 130 leaders of tomorrow. This gentleman's at the front of the room. I, I raised my hand and asked a question, and he said, "And the question is." Hey, do you think that I could ever make it? And this is again, I'm a level three individual contributor, but I, I felt like this program was building me up for more. So do you think that I could ever make it with a beard? And he pointedly said no. He said, leaders at the top don't have beards. Like that's just not that's not what the company is. And I was like, well, damn, that's just a beard. And I was before beards became popular and in like I before beard oil was on the shelves at Target, I this was early enough on. That is like, you know, I'm, I'm trying to, this is just who I am. I've always had a beard very early after graduating college. Like, if I can't even be me here, then what am I doing all of this stuff? You mean to tell me that all of the, the, the investments you made in the rotation program and me being in this development thing, because I have a beard, I can't make it. Like, what about all of the things that I display for my ability to just perform, to execute, to strategize, to communicate? And that was the moment where I'm saying, I'm not, I'm not really taking that. And it's been a journey from that point. I can't say that I show this is definitely hair that I grew when I was trying to figure out what do I want to do in the pandemic and I'm inside, right? But I think the the person who was willing to show up on camera every day with the baby fro that was growing and me trying to figure out what product to put in there and what works for my hair texture and the person who said, well, you know, why would I wear a suit to this thing. Cause another time was there were so many moments. Uh, there were executives who were standing around me at, we have this thing called the Boeing leadership center and the Boeing leadership center is, it's just fantastic. It's like a five-star state. It's just beautiful. And they teach you to be a leader there. So I've been in the center like 20 times. There are people that have been at that company 30 years and haven't been one. So I'm like, you guys are giving me all this stuff and I'm getting developed again, a bunch of executives, none of them people of color. Um, but mix in gender, and they're standing there, and I hear them within earshot in the bar area saying, what are we going to do with him? I mean, he's so cool. He's wearing Air Jordans. And I was like, is this company so, and this is in our free time, right? It's not like I'm in session. I wore flats and shirts in session. I'm like, is this company that confused by me just showing up as a Black person? That you all, and and it didn't sound like they were holding me back. They were actually, I had performed so well throughout the week in the case competition. They're like, where can we place him? We want a Zan Truluck on our team, but people are like, we don't know what to do. <laughs> and I'll never forget that. So being told no with the beard, I'm here with the beard and the Jordans, and I'm being specially selected to be in yet another class, but I'm seeing people are saying, we don't know what to do with them. And I'm like, well, let me go and make this space make room for me because I'm not going anywhere. Mm-hmm. <laughs> My performance is such where you're not going to put me out unless I choose to leave. And I want to make this place look better for people like me. And I started seeing people come up behind me and the more I started accepting that people were looking up to me, that's the more I started showing up authentically. So when I got in that one program as the one percenters, a lot of people who look like me would reach out and say, how'd you get in? What's the secret sauce? And I was like, oh, am I like a person that to be looked up to now? I'm a mentor. So the more that I became a mentor, I said, I need to show people it's okay to show up and be yourself. Um, I don't want people to come and think that the only way to get to whatever heights I may have ascended to is to change. Mm-hmm. 
So it's, uh, I had a, a, a new team member join recently. We call each other Bearded Brothers because he asked, uh, we report to the same person. So he asked our boss, hey, uh, can I, like, what's, am I, could I show up with a beard to this company? Because people think Boeing, like, oh, you got to fit, fit the mold. And she, she said, I hate that you had to ask that question. And I'm so glad I can point to Zan Truluck on my team who has a beard and braided hair. And I think that he would say you can show up as yourself. And that those types of stories and just like people I am in me when I'm on call speaking to 500 people behind the scenes, man, is that you with two braids like Nipsey Hussle today? It's just like the to show up for my community in this way and see how many people feel like we wish that we wish that uh, that everyone else knew that we could be this way. Or like I, I joined a Crown Act discussion the other day where black executives are talking about just wearing the hair and being fierce and, and just showing up as who you want to be. And I think. It was the me doing it. I'm not saying I'm the person that started it at all, right? But me doing it, me seeing other people do it. Uh, there's a Morehouse man CEO. So the moment that he went on the walls and I saw a bald-headed black man on the walls, like, oh, there's space for me too. And it just made me want to show up as me every day. I love that. And you actually, this is a great segue. You mentioned the mentorship piece. You know, I was just having this conversation last week about just the uptick in requests that I've gotten for coffee mm-hmm. and can, can we go to lunch? I just want to pick your brain. I'm having, and I always had it in my career, but it's very evident to me now that as visibility has increased and just where I sit mm-hmm. in my profession and the title, I'm like, oh, now I'm a bit of an old head, right? Like to the, the mm-hmm. youngsters who are coming. When you accept it, uh, it's amazing. It, yes. I fought it for a long time. Yes, <laughs> I, I'm totally like embracing that and I love it. But I also understand that it's a lot to balance when you're trying to have that mentor piece for others. And also you're at your point at the point in your career where you are seen as a senior leader, but everything's not just delegation. Like you're actually executing Mm -hmm. it well. It's that weird middle of the road space and it takes a lot of time and energy to juggle all those things. So how have you managed Mm -hmm. that professionally while also being wholly focused on your own business and the things that you're working on on the other side of the fence? Uh, You know, I was eating dinner with my grandma and my uncle last month. And my uncle said, how long can you sustain it, man? Mm. <laughs> He's like, I hear everything you're doing. I see everything you're doing. How long can you sustain it? And I'm like, you know, I don't know. Cause I don't feel tired, but I think that neurological thing I joined yesterday also talked a lot about what rest looks like and allowing your mind to uh, do mental wandering or mind wandering is how you gain insights in life. So a lot of how I balance is creating intentional space to have that. So like Nate, every Friday, my team knows, my org knows, Friday mornings, Zan is at the lake praying and meditating. And I'm thinking about work on the way there, but this hour and a half that I'm there until I get back, it's like, I may not think about it, but it's like, I need that time to just let my mind be by the lake, be looking at what God has painted across the sky. And then it kind of helps me to engage with some of that other stuff that's going on. Or it's like, I might come out of that that lake in nature moment with, okay, these are the five ways I'm going to solve today's problems at work. And this is the artwork I'm going to do on the day in. Mm-hmm. And I wish I could say like, there's some magic formula. I don't, I don't even drink caffeine. Um, like I, I don't have children yet. So maybe that makes it a little easier for me to keep going as I do. I also think Morehouse taught us a bit of toxic productivity. Um, and I think it, it, it's, I'm able to be productive very easily. And, or at least it feels easy, but I've also been keeping that pulse on when do things start feeling hard and putting more things down? Because 
even recently I realized I have a tendency. So I work on like 12 things at a time. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is, it, I just can't not work on something. So when I transition from one side of the house to the other, I pick up an iPad, I've got headphones, this journal that I told you earlier, I'm taking everywhere with me, like two cell phones, a, maybe two laptops is just a transition and in my water to try to stay hydrated. And I said one day, you can walk back and pick up the rest of the stuff, put a couple things down. Even when I'm painting, I've got six brushes, two in my mouth. Like I, and I, I've been catching myself recently and intentionally saying, slow down, put some things down, accomplish one thing at a time, or, you know, maybe a couple, but really keeping that pulse on when am I spinning? Am I, am I juggling too many balls, you know, and, and you should know which ones are glass or which ones are rubber. So I can drop some of them and they'll break, but the others that I could drop it will bounce right back up. And trying to just be self-aware. I breathe, breathe a lot. Is <laughs> just These are the Zen practices of being Zen, I guess. But like, even when people ask me, how am I doing? I go and search myself before I actually ask, answer that question. And it's all been helping me to really be present in each of the spaces that I'm, that I'm occupying. Um, yeah, sorry. So I, I'm not even certain if I asked your, answered your question you fully. You did. Absolutely. Um, and all of those things, I think you really mentioned the toxic productivity thing on one mm-hmm. side, and it seems counterintuitive to those of us who have grown up and been socialized to do. Just get it done no matter Exhaust your energy, all those things on a day-to-day basis. Mm-hmm. But taking that time to get grounded and really check in with yourself around how you feel about it, all the work that you're doing. And taking the moment, be it a Friday morning or a Wednesday afternoon or whenever, to say everything's got to stop for a minute, actually will help you to to go farther. And sometimes that feels hard for some people, like resistant. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know how to just be. And I'm one of them. I, I almost laughed out loud when you mentioned like moving from one part of the house to the other because I am that person, right? Two devices, mm-hmm. the notebook, jotted things down. Oh, I'll text this person about this one project. Do this. Work emails mm-hmm. still popping up. It's never just hey, I'm going to watch this documentary on Netflix. It's always, I'm going to watch that and do these other things as well. And Mm -hmm. those moments where you just unplug from all of it and say, I need to check in with myself for whatever period of time are so, it's so crucial to being able to have forward movement um, as well. And and I know everyone, everyone I know who kind of functions in the way that we do, they struggle with that um, consistently. And I'm always applauding those who have mastered it. I think I'm still trying to master that moment of stillness uh, at an appointed time every single week or every single day. But it it really is like a go slow to go fast. Taking that time mm-hmm. is only going to mean that when you do lock back in, you can accelerate in the way that you, you want to. Yeah. And eventually it kind of feels like it, it very much feels seamless to me. It's mm-hmm. just a part of who I am. And to the point where like I kind of get this from my grandma. My mom thinks it's raunchy, but my grandma will just stand up and start stretching and cracking her body and stuff anywhere she is. And by the time you're 70 something years old, you just learn that um, you, like you have to do what you need in the moment. So I similarly, I'll be in the middle of, of anywhere and just rotating, crack my back or stand up and stretch. Or uh, like if there's a moment in the day where I feel like, oh, I'm just not where I need to be to give myself to people in the best way, I'll go and do whatever I need to recalibrate. Now, again, some of that is an opportunity afforded to me because I'm in leadership and I get to kind of make my own schedule unless it's someone above me sending that down my way. But I think when you have built team culture and I mean, just like not even just team culture, a life culture around boundaries and explaining to people why boundaries are important 
and then saying, I, I invite you to also have boundaries and share them with me because I want to respect yours. It just gets you to a point where those boundaries help us to not just survive, but thrive. And this is what I need for my life to be nourished in the way that has me show up in the best way possible. And I want to give everyone that same latitude to do what they need to do to be them and give me what I need to be me. And it, I probably should say that it was a big part of the art school education. Right? So like going to art school, they, and being in those gifted and talented classes, they told my mom early, if your kid doesn't want to come to school one day, don't make them go to school because we mentally tax them. And they give so much of themselves because they're high performers that they just need a break sometime. And it's not them being a slacker or sluggard. And that's been something that stuck with me. So you can't take an art school kid and make them corporate. It's just, it just doesn't work because in order to get all the gifts that are in me, a system might need to look a little different for me and I need to stretch and grow in different ways. And I think that's, again, just back to that, giving people what they need to be successful with the environment in which they thrive. Self-care is a part of my environment thriving. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, I just, you got to be intentional about it. And I, I love that it's a thing now. Like, um, you know, like it's, I was saying the other day on Twitter that uh, crying as a black man is kind of the most luxurious and defiant act that I do, mm. especially because we're expected to be so, so hard, uh, we're, which is expected to be tough. That's not men don't cry. And, and as much as it's been a movement lately, I think over the last five years or so, still men are like, wait, you cry, bro? Or like, you know, <laughs> I even like, and some people may think it's weird, but every now and then I might post a picture on the internet, like, this is a gratitude, these are gratitude tears. And people like, a man is on the internet crying, let me call you. I'm like, I'm completely fine. I'm trying to normalize crying, man. Um, but it is, it's one of those things where I'm intentional about even having that space on a weekly basis to just say, let it out, just release things in whatever way that comes out authentically and often it shows up as tears. Now I'm like, man, this feels like I got the luxury in life to not be crying from stresses. It's just crying because I need to emote. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, Self-care movement. I'm all for it now. Tell me about it. So shifting gears, describe a time when you had to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. All right. So as I was thinking about this, and it, I was reminded like, oh yeah, DeMarcus did say that the question that she always asked. Uh, so it's hard for me to answer and it should be no shock because of how I've spoken here today. So it's like, I, I, I don't deal well with the, the concept being so linear like that, like the one day, because back to this idea of giving your gift to the world, I think every day that you get up and give your gift to the world, you are giving the world something extraordinary, like the, especially with all that we face on at a given time, the news media, the crises around us every day, getting up and committing to, offering yourself and offering something beyond yourself to the world is extraordinary. And a person who I literally every day get up, like I said, and put on a costume, like, who do I want to show up at today? Am I Zan the artist with the wild glasses? Am I Zan the DEI leader? Like, who do I want to dress as this day for how I'm going to affect the world? So there is no one day that I had to wake up and be extraordinary because I don't do well in the mundane. Out of all of the I don't believe that life is ordinary. I believe every day there is something extremely unique. I believe we show up with all these unique talents every day to whatever challenges we may face. So like, this, I think my life has been extraordinary enough with all of that trauma where um, I, I just any given day, I feel like me showing up is me giving an extraordinary effort to make something of my life and, and put my purpose out in this world. So Maybe I shared it earlier. Um, maybe it was, you know, just, I'd say to go to school every day 
um, in high school in those days where I may have washed up in the Dunkin' Donuts or the laundromat bathroom were days that I was extraordinary when I was just trying to do what other people would say is go and go and write your paper or go and do your homework or go and do your schoolwork, excuse me. So, um, yeah, I, I don't, I, I've been extraordinary in many days, um, but I think I've shared a couple of examples in, in totality. I, while I love your question, I'm not saying it's a bad question at all, of course, Alicia. Well, while I love your question, it's hard for me to answer so specifically because I try to be extraordinary every day. Yeah, and I'm smiling because that question is never meant to be received literally. It can, it can mean whatever anyone wants it to mean. It's really about thriving in spite of circumstances, right? And and, and obviously mm-hmm. it's based on the tagline of the show, but what it represents is so much more than it, what we might call an ordinary day and what you had to do in a specific moment on a specific day, which is why we don't give people guidance on how to answer it, because it can mean <laughs> and be interpreted many different ways um, and, and all of those things. And, you know, for me, we've talked about many ways to be extraordinary on an ordinary day on this show. And sometimes that just means sometimes it means just getting rest, right? And or mm-hmm. deciding that I am going to do what's best for me today and unplug. Sometimes it means saying no. Sometimes it means resisting your urge for output. Sometimes it means a consistent season in your life of having to show up in spite of circumstances. So um I love that you answered it that way. And you're not the first one to take more of a composite approach to it. And we never want people to feel tied to now I got to speak to a specific instance. Um, of when I might have been extraordinary. So trust me, you're right in line with the uh, credo here at the December 26th podcast. And resisting your urge for output. I love that. That, that, I mean, if we could build that skill set, a lot of us would be a lot healthier. Absolutely. So before we let you get out of here, tell me a little bit more about your long-term vision for your art and the design work that you did. So um, I, you know, it's, I'm integrating everybody that I have been in all these different spaces, right? So you've got Morehouse Man, you have DEI leader, you have artists, you have clothing designer converging into one person who shows up in every space. So with my art, it really is taking these messages of diversity, equity, and inclusion, social justice, social consciousness, and putting them into something that is wearable art now. So I've been taking I started off uh, with all of the cartoons of my youth or even my mother's youth generation when we watch old school cartoons and changing them all to be more representative of what it looked like to be black mm-hmm. <laughs> because we were widely, the industry and media was widely absent of us in those types of cartoons or they were caricatures of us. So things it was like, well, even on Rugrats, there was just Susie Carmichael, but it's like, well, what if I maybe, what would it look like if Angelica was black? or if? And then when I'm doing these types of things in my art, I am also, I've built my my brand around a principle called worth over wealth. And that is valuing your worth first and foremost. And then if you desire wealth, wealth will come afterwards, but don't be so pegged on riches and really knowing that your true wealth is in your values, the richness in the life that you lead. And that's like, you're worthy of the wealth, but really focus on your worth and everything else will follow. So it, in this idea of living a principles-based life, I'm trying to take the principles of diversity, equity, inclusion, the principles of just owning your testimony and knowing that you're worthy of who you are and who you show up to be every day and knowing that you can authentically be yourself and be fly while doing it. So it's like the clothing has been me putting these messages into the clothes. So if you I have a refund Black America um, hoodie and 
this is not necessarily the vision forward to what you asked, but like I have this hoodie where I took the Monopoly man that we've always been taught is Uncle Pennybags who has money and in this game, but we've never seen a black version of him. So mm-hmm. I changed him to a black man who has Ankara pants on and a Sankofa cane. And on the back of the hoodie, it says worth over wealth. And it's just giving these messages to people in a way that I eventually want to be the person where your kids and in this next generation don't know that Rugrats didn't have full representation because my image is the plant the images that the industry said, this is all that there was. Like even in, I have a shirt that says your black friends attire where I'm kind of making fun of the fact that all of these cartoons had black people, but never really discussed black issues. So like there's Carl from the Simpsons, who was the only real, like the black people in the Simpsons were black, but most people were yellow. So it's an interesting thing that you call out the fact that he's black, but it's him with his best friend. There's Skeeter from Doug, who blue characters me were just black people. And they chose to clearly make Doug white, but wouldn't give black people the show. Because like your friends are tired of not having full representation. And my vision is to be fully representative of our people's experiences and cultures and have something for us while also promoting images that are just positive and giving people, again, art that they could wear. Too often, like I'm a painter, I'm a fine artist. I think my oil paintings are beautiful, but people can't always afford art. And people can't, uh, they, they just don't always look at it in the same way as being able to say, oh, I'm wearing art around on my body every day and I'm wearing a message. So I just want more wearable art out there for people to experience, to engage, to have conversations, to go and meet new people. I continue to get people saying, hey, Zan, I, I wore your stuff today. And 15 people came up and asked me a question about it. And those things aren't necessarily translating to sales all the time. The conversations are so much more important to me, though. Like someone to say, Worth wealth. I like that baby, like old ladies in the airport. And so I was like, well, that's not really what it means, but let's have a conversation. And it just connects folks. And back to that collectivism that I just love, I am building community. And the way that I'm hoping to do this kind of in the, in the very near term is I've been intentional about building the network. Mm-hmm. And that's something that Morehouse taught me. So it's, I've been, I did this linked by campaign in February, just as a pilot and as a tester and was sharing the riches of the community chest, like I like to call it. I'm really big on this monopoly theme. And everyone within this network and in connection to me is planting their own seeds to grow a village. And how do we fertilize the land on which they walk under the, on top of those seeds? And it was sharing, you've got Stuart Cornelius, the senior manager at Twitter. You have Janelle Richards, who is a senior producer at NBC. You have Lamar Quinn, who is a licensed and, and doctor of pharmacy. Like just sharing all these people so that they can connect and I, I called it linked by, maybe I'll make an app that'll be the black LinkedIn or something like that, right? But just trying to share that fabric of my network with other people through this clothing. So and then as soon as somebody bought something, they're part of my network. I'm I'm handwriting notes to everyone. And it's not like the business is that small. So at times I get arthritis and cramps just trying to write things. But it's I, I just want to connect people and I want to build authentic connection with folks through this clothing. So I'm these are tribal garments in my opinion, and I'm really trying to build a tribe of people who are outside living in their purpose and just giving the world their gifts. I love it. Listen, DeMarcus told me this was going to be a great conversation and looking at the time. Yes, we had a great I'm sorry. I kept glancing at it. I was like, cut out whatever you need. Like, no, we let these long, I mean, the long, long standing <laughs> listeners, they know, like we let it rock. Uh, and if all the content is good, even if we have to cut it into two episodes, we will do that. So um, we, we cool. give time guidelines more so for the guests than for ourselves, mm-hmm. right? I'd love to have more to work with and not enough. So trust me, uh, this was amazing. I'm so happy we got a chance to to connect and it's great to meet somebody else within Stu's orbit as well. Um, <laughs> we both are great people. 
And before we let you get out of here, tell the people where they can find you online. Uh, yeah, the social media thing. That's very 2022. So you all can find me at True Luck. That is T as in Thomas, R-U-L-U-C as in Charlie, K as in Kilo, dot charms, C-H-A-R-M-S on Instagram. Uh, TrueLuckCharms.com is my website where you can just go and find all things in my web store. Just a reel about me that kind of condenses the story, which maybe Delisha would have appreciated today. Um, and also has kind of my core principles there, what I believe in and what my company believes in. And then trueluckcharms.com will show you all the other things you need to connect with. And last thing I have to say before I get out of here, June 14th, Atlanta. I'm going to say it here so I commit to it. Bar Vegan in Atlanta on June 14th. I am having my first art show in 17 years since that 17-year-old kid decided he couldn't make money as an artist. The same June, 17 years later, I am returning to do Teenage Summer. So if you all can make it, please come through. You heard it, folks. Now, you know, I've been talking about investing in art. Now I need to get my money together. Like we got to make it happen for sure. We got, we have something for everybody at all price points. (laughs) Absolutely. To our listeners, listen, you know what to do. And we do know that we have a Georgia contingent. So if you are hearing this, we'll make sure it's out in advanced time with enough time for people to get ready uh, to support your art show there in Atlanta, but also check out uh, the work that Dan is doing online, his clothing, all that great stuff. And the DEI space, I feel like we're all talking about it. Uh, so if you're looking to network in that area as well, please reach out, broaden your network as he has mentioned here as well. You know, we are very supportive of that here at the December 26th or brand. Once you do all that, if you've enjoyed this podcast, send it to someone else. We covered a lot of ground. So I know at least one of these areas of conversation has resonated with you. Make sure you tell somebody else about it. And after you do all that, remember to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Take care. Thank you for listening to the December 26er podcast. I am your host, Delisha. This episode was produced by Demarcus Adisa and music was provided by Thovo. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at December 26er. That's December 26ER.